Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. New Hampshire's 2020 First in the Nation primary went so well from a logistical standpoint last week that everyone from the Secretary of State on down to the city and town clerks got a shout out from the governor and a standing O from the legislature at the State of the State address. Three candidates had something to celebrate last week, a few dropped out, and some are now on the ropes. But there is still a long way to go in this primary process, and here to help us talk it out, look backwards and forwards, are Karen Hicks and Michael Biundo, two of the top political minds here in the state. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So let's start with you, Karen. Uh, before we get to the race itself. Uh, right now, looking forward, the Democrats appear to be set to head into kind of a delegate war of attrition right now. What's going to happen next? Well, I think one thing that's important to keep in mind is we're really early in the process. Uh, just over 1% of the total delegates have been awarded in these first two contests. Even after Nevada and South Carolina, it'll be 3%. And so March is really going to be critical as the campaigns break out. We have Super Tuesday and the following Tuesday are big delegate caches that'll be up for grabs. Mm -hmm. So I think we will know a lot about who the likely nominee is towards the end of March, but I think it's going to be a real race to get there. Mm -hmm. And Mike, uh, you've advised, uh, I think, what was it, three candidates in 2016. So you had a real perspective on that race well from a lot of different yeah. uh, you know, aspects of that race, though. Do you see any similarity between Donald Trump then and Bernie Sanders now in terms of the establishment being like, there's yeah. no way this guy can win, and yet he might keep building? I do. Um, you know, I was talking about it with uh, some of my colleagues just the other day. You know, I think one of the things that Bernie has that, that Donald Trump had in 2016, I think still has now, is energy behind his, his campaign. Uh, you cannot deny that Bernie Sanders can fill a room. Um, Donald Trump is very good at filling arenas. And I think that type of energy is something for on the Republican side we have to be cautious of and we have to look at and say, you know what, you know, something's happening there. There is a different type of campaign than what we're used to going up against on the Republican side. Karen, what do you think there? Obviously, Sanders has that chunk of support, but is there a hard ceiling there? Well, I think we'll find out soon. And so he clearly has very committed supporters that did not leave him in this. And in a very large field, you know, he's got a lock on about a third of the electorate and they're committed. And so part of the dynamics in the race is that Elizabeth Warren peeled off. He, he underperformed, obviously, from where he was last time. He was about half of his support in the state of New Hampshire, uh, but he kept that support and they didn't go anywhere. Elizabeth Warren peeled off a lot and then recommitted to contesting that kind of progressive lane in the primary, and I think she saw the limitations of that as well. And I think as the contest is, is more wide open and we get outside these early states, Bloomberg is going to be a factor in that, and we will potentially see some consolidation of the moderate candidates as some of them just decide to bow out because either their cash runs out or they they think this is the fight of their life and they're gonna make a sacrifice for the greater good I think I, I think to Karen's point too um, you know in January, I think January 30th is when South Carolina started taking early votes to have early vote in, in person. So, you know, Joe Biden has an organization d down there. I would not count Joe Biden out yet. I think, you know, there he has trouble coming out of here. But if you remember in, in uh, 2012, Newt Gingrich came in fifth here and he won 
South Carolina. Now, I know it was a neighboring state of Georgia is where Newt Gingrich is from, but still, that breathed new life into his campaign and kept him around much longer than when we would have wanted to on the Santorum campaign. Speaking of Joe Biden, a lot of uh, political folks, especially on the strategist side, were just pulling their hair out seeing what happened there on Election Day in terms of him announcing he would leave the state early in the day. What were your thoughts on that, Karen? Well, I, I think a lot of people were frustrated with his effort here. He started out conceding right after Iowa. He basically said, I'm going to lose New Hampshire. And so I think if you have been working and knocking on doors for him, that is really dispiriting to see. And then when he left the state, I think it continued the frustration. The reality with Biden is that he has served the party for many, many years. But I think in this kind of contest where people are so fired up about taking down Trump, um, he hasn't run the kind of campaign that um, a lot of people think it's going to take to take down this incumbent president. So I think there's a lot of disappointment. He's never been a particularly strong campaigner. He's been prone to gaffes. And people watching him who had expectations that he was going to really come in and consolidate the field, I think, were disappointed. Um, the campaign waffled between letting Joe be Joe and trying to run a more scripted effort and kind of did both. And that left a lot of people scratching their head. It's amazing to see that even over time, from 1987 to 2020, it's rare to see a candidate run a different race. They just are who they are, and that's what happens, essentially. But, Mike, what did you think when you saw him leave? You know... What was Joe Biden's message? I mean, I think more importantly than him pulling out that day, which I think was a major mistake, I don't think he had a message. I mean, other than I'm the guy who can win, but then you don't prove it by you know losing the first two states, where do you go from here? Because, you know, in the end, he tried to change up his messaging. I saw he went out on TV, brought the Obama in, and he actually had a little bit more of a cohesive message. But up until that point, there was no message whatsoever other than vote for me because I can beat Donald Trump. And, you know, that doesn't win when there's energy around other people's ideas as well, and you're not actually winning the states. Let's talk about a candidate you mentioned already who didn't even compete here in the primary, but did manage to get some write-in votes, and that's Michael Bloomberg. He's moved into the state. It's almost like uh, Kramer on Jerry Seinfeld opens the door and says, here I am. Hey, what's going to happen with this? Well, I think that he has uh, come in with his formidable resource bank, and he is nervous about, like many of us are, about what happens if Donald Trump actually wins a second term. And so I think there's a lot of people who look at this field who are nervous about how uh, dispersed it is, how long the contest is, is going to go on. Um, he's concerned about the country and is willing to spend, and I think that makes this unprecedented. And so it's obviously very hard for him, having been a Republican and an independent to come into the Democratic Party. He's making a play that we've seen some people make half-hearted efforts before, but there's a couple of things that I think are different. One is that he is going to spend what it takes, and he's already started spending what it takes in these states. We've never seen that, even when you think about um, other contests, Steve Forbes coming in, uh, Donald Trump coming in, Michael Bloomberg is really um, opening up the doors and will do what it takes to be competitive in, in the uh, race. The other thing that he's doing is running a campaign that's going to, if he's not the ultimate nominee, the campaign that he's running is going to benefit the ultimate nominee because of how he's taking it to Trump and, and really, I think, running very smart set of political advertisements that are going to benefit the whole field. Mike, what do you think is a Republican strategist, are you worried about the impact Bloomberg could have, maybe not for himself, but even to, for other races in the state where he's going to start sharing, as, as Karen called it, this bank of money? I think you'd be silly not to worry about that much money coming into a, any sort of uh, campaign. That being said, 
you know, I think Bloomberg has an authenticity problem. And I think because, as you said, he was a Republican, he was an independent, there's really no, you know, who he is. And I think also on the Democrat side, I can't see him winning the nomination because I can't see them voting for a billionaire. Like, it, it doesn't seem to make sense to me that that is going to end up being the ultimate nominee of your party. Right, but what, what has happened over the last couple of years is people like us can't predict anything, it turns out. And, and we none <laughs> of us a have a crystal point. ball, and we're in a time of unbelievable disruption in our political system. And so I think we should all concede that to begin with. And on the Democratic side, people's desire, desire to beat Donald Trump is, is really squeezing everything else out. If people have a pet issue, they're putting that aside. If they have a pet candidate, most the most encouraging thing that I saw out of the exit polls and in my conversations with Democrats is that they want to beat him. And so they're willing to put aside everything else. And so I think that that opens up the space for a candidate like Michael Bloomberg, if he can make the case convincingly, and he'll have the chance to. Yeah, you think about the just even the... The old concept of sectionalism in the United States, if it's going to be three guys from New York, Donald Trump, Michael Bloomberg, and Bernie Sanders, at the end of all of this, it's going to be kind of bizarre. But another thing that's changed is endorsements. Do we need to rethink that whole thing here now? So much of the establishment came in for Hillary uh, four years ago. That didn't work here. Same with Trump. Um, and now this time around, uh, everybody went for Booker, and he dropped out. Um, and I guess, do you change anything now moving forward with campaigns with endorsements? Well, I look at it this way. I think it's always been part part of the game. I don't think it is the game, uh, especially in New Hampshire. I mean, people here make up their own minds. They don't need to be told by, you know, a congressman or a state senator on who to vote for. They actually go out and do the hard work. It's what I love about the first in the nation primary is, you know, they're going and seeing people three, four times before they finally make their decision. And endorsement's not going to make it make as much of a difference here as it would in someplace else. That being said, I think it's still part of it. You know, it, the money's part of it. The grassroots is part of it. It's part of a complete campaign. And if you don't run a complete campaign, when you have good contenders up against, you lose. I think that's right. I think that um, for those of us who have worked on campaigns, you know that an endorsement gives you one vote, maybe, if, if, you, if you do the proper care and feeding of that person. And so it is part of what we evaluate how campaigns are doing before the votes are cast. And so uh, looking at fundraising totals, looking at those endorsements, because that's where the first competition is. Those candidates are working the phone trying to get school board members and members of the Senate and members of the State House. And so it's one thing we shouldn't read too much into it, and I still think it's going to be part of the process. Yeah. Uh, as we wrap up here, uh, is the first in the nation primary in danger, Karen? As it always is. Hmm. We Every time uh, the circus leaves town, we have a lot of hand-wringing, bedwetting about whether or not this is the last time. It's always under threat. We have to continue to do our work to earn it, both in terms of the um, intelligence and the engagement of our voters. We saw record turnout in this election, which I think is really excellent, especially coming off of the um, messy outcome in Iowa. But uh, the members of the DNC and the RNC are going to have to do their work. Bill Gardner or the uh, um, Secretary of State going forward is going to have to do their work, and we're going to have to mix it up with the other states who are encroaching either through early voting or the people who are making the case that we need a different set of states like to go you got first. about 30 seconds. Yeah, here. no, I, I agree with what Karen said. I would also say, you know, Donald Trump got 120,000 votes here. Republicans came out and voted. Um, they were energized and they, and they were excited. 
and that's because they not only just because Donald Trump is a someone who brings energy into it, but the First Nation primary is something that they really believe in. And I think you know the big winners here was our state. Um, the reporters like you and WMUR did all a lot of hard work here. Um, we all should take credit in what what happened in the First Nation primary, and hopefully it stays for another hundred years. All right, Michael Biundo, Karen Hicks, thank you for your insight this morning. We appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. The Flintstones. The Flintstones, weeknights at 6 on MeTV New Hampshire. Channel listings at MeTVNewHampshire.com. Still so much to sort through from the mountain of stories and outcomes of this recent New Hampshire primary. Here to help us get a big picture look at the campaigns is WMUR political reporter John Staso. Thanks for being here and still being here we're, as we we're still here as the long week continues. Exactly. So let's just go through these uh, campaigns one by one. Bernie Sanders, now two-time winner of the New Hampshire primary. Uh, John, how did he pull this one off? Uh, mainly with goodwill left over from 2016. And, but even more importantly, uh, a on the ground organization that really was tops in the state. It, it never really went away from 2016 that the core organization stayed in place. They certainly had a rocky road uh, uh, late in the fall, late last year, summer of last year, uh, where they had to make some changes. But, this, but the, the heartfelt support of his supporters uh, was there. Obviously, he didn't get 60%, but there were a heck of a lot more candidates this time. Yeah, very different race, and he was able to grind it out. And certainly, you mentioned that campaign trouble he had early on. A lot of these bigger campaigns came in with a bigness, <laughs> yeah. if that's the best way to right. put it. Uh, and that was a problem for some of the Bernie folks who had been there from the very beginning of that insurgent campaign in 2015. Uh, they kept hammering away at the national campaign, saying, you got to change here, you got to yeah. change. And there were some changes made, and that ended up working out for it. It seems like it did become more of a ground up. I mean, I hate to be a cliche, but it's true. More of a, instead of a top-down approach that they had at the beginning, more of a ground up approach that was uh, reminiscent of, of 2016. Added to the fact, Adam, of course, that, you know, money counts, and Bernie Sanders raised a tremendous amount of money. And, and, as, and as anyone watching knows from watching this station, uh, advertising certainly helped. And the type of advertising was sort of that, you know, a one-to-one message that uh, he really portrayed. Right. And he certainly yeah. cleaned up in the college towns from uh, Keene to yes. Durham. He did really well. And the cities. And the cities too. So that Which was, was surprising, core right? urban areas. Yeah. yeah. I looked at Manchester. I didn't really expect him to do as well as he did here, but he, they worked and they knock, they did apparently knock on a lot of doors as they said they did. And so. he held down the fort in western New Hampshire right. where he needed to keep an advantage. And it's interesting, moving to the number two finisher in this race, mm -hmm. Pete Buttigieg worked very hard to try and sort of diminish that advantage in western right. New Hampshire. And he right. came close in places like Claremont, where right. he visited three times, mm -hmm. and I think he kept it within a couple hundred votes there, between 500 right. for him and about 700 for right. Sanders. But in the end for Buttigieg, not enough to win, but certainly, I mean, an incredible yeah. finish for someone coming in here as absolutely no one back in right. early 2019. You know, uh, there's certainly a narrative there that he can accurately say, and his supporters can accurately say, that he was a quote-unquote winner of this, because who expected Pete Buttigieg months ago to be where he was, so close to Bernie Sanders. Uh, they could spin that Bernie Sanders perhaps didn't do as well as he should have. Bernie Sanders did win. Pete Buttigieg in second place, ahead of Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden. Um, there's no other way to look at it but a win. And again, they, they worked very hard. He, he, he drew tremendous crowds here, uh, as you well know. And uh, 
We'll see where he goes from here. Now the road may get a little rougher for him. Right. A remarkable and meteoric rise. And you can see, we mentioned Claremont. He did well there. He, he won the city of Laconia. Hanover. And Hanover, too. So, uh, And the campaign was pushing this in the wake uh, of Tuesday, mm -hmm. saying essentially the support for Pete is broad-based. There's a lot of different people coming into this. And there's an argument there. If uh, you know, you're looking for someone who can take on President Trump in the fall, mm -hmm. that might be him. But he has to get through this rough and tumble primary process. Yes, he does. And I think he got a lot of the, as you say, the suburban vote, the more progressive progressive but not totally far left a progressive vote a lot of that went went to went to Buttigieg and it also uh, went to Amy Klobuchar, which I think uh, we might be yeah, discussing uh, a next. A perfect transition yes. there. And you have to wonder if there's going to be one it, uh, what if uh, for Pete Buttigieg in the final days of this campaign. What if he had been able to go bigger in the debate? And of course, he was under a tremendous amount of fire and attack there and was playing a lot of defense. But clearly, the story coming out of the debate was Amy Klobuchar. Right. And you could see in places uh, that probably paid attention to that debate, like Ward 1 in Manchester, she won. And she, she was able to, they're calling it the Klobuchar, you know, was yeah. able to make that last minute strong as well, <laughs> yes. She had a tremendous debate. Uh, she was that candidate that peaked exact, exactly at the right time. It happens, uh, you know, throughout history at, at times, and uh, she w that was where she was right uh, this time. And it had a lot to do with the way she campaigned, the personal aspect of it. She was uh, also, uh, of course, the, the strong debate, and then following that up with some very, very. Um, effective events and an effective narrative about drawing people in from the middle. And uh, she uh, probably took some votes from, well, obviously from Joe Biden, uh, and I would think to a degree from, uh, from, from Buttigieg. Mm -hmm. And the comparison I would make, and maybe this is not one-to-one, -one, but in some ways it seems like a little bit of a John McCain uh, with Amy Klobuchar. You know, she, she had some of the self-deprecating yeah. humor. She was funny, but also had that edge. You know, when you poked her, she was going to poke back. Right. And, and she uh, used the term grit Yeah, a lot. grit. And she, yeah. T she talked about McCain reverent, you know, in a reverent way. As mm -hmm. she paired, you know, coupled with him on, on, on legislation. So she knew what, you know, she knew how to get to the sort of the independent voter as well. Right. And obviously John McCain drew a lot of independent votes in his time. And she, I'm sure when we find that figure out in the next day or so, we will see that a lot of the independent vote went to uh, Amy Klobuchar. And one common bond that they share as well is humor. It is always exactly. down the list, but very important in terms of developing a rapport here. You know, John McCain was able to make people laugh. Klobuchar could do the same. Dry uh, humor. Exactly. Yes. I, I think the, uh, so many people were talking about her, you know, talking about the ex-boyfriends donating $17,000 to her campaign. Right. So right. there was something there that people caught on to and what a finish for her. Right. On the flip side, we have the fourth and fifth place finishers. Uh, Elizabeth Warren yeah. comes up short here in New Hampshire. This was a loss to her, not just no in so many ways, because she had for so long focused on New Hampshire, and she was the front runner here last summer and just couldn't sustain. I think it's devastating for her, probably even more so potentially. We'll see in the coming weeks than than for Joe Biden, because Joe Biden has a, a you know allegedly has a firewall. At least that's what he thinks he does. I don't know exactly where Elizabeth Warren's firewall is. I thought this was it. This was where she had to at least finish. I thought second. We uh, remember when we all thought that it was going to be a, this battle between Bernie and <clears throat> excuse me Elizabeth Warren. And as it turned out, uh, she just just the opposite of Klobuchar. Uh, Elizabeth Warren peaked back when the leaves were changing. And I don't know. Maybe she just didn't know how to kind of bring this home and make it more personalized to people. She talked in that way, but I think there was just some sort of a missing element in terms of believability. Mm. Um, 
And now where does she go from here? Uh, she says she's going to, her campaign says she's going to go through to Super Tuesday. But if she does terribly in uh, Nevada and South Carolina, the question is, does she make it to, to Super Tuesday? Right. If I had to pinpoint one thing with her, <clears throat> she's this brilliant candidate. And people would no come question. out of those uh, town halls and just say, my goodness, she knows so much and she knows exactly what she wants to do. But then she hit that stumble in October with Medicare for All and yeah. having to go back and forth. And it's hard to be the candidate with all the plans and then not have the plan in place for health care. And that seemed to pop the bubble a little bit there. But speaking of popping the bubble, mm -hmm. Joe Biden, uh, this is going to go down sort of in um, first in the nation infamy as one of the big collapses in, in, in an odd way. He's done it before. Uh, yeah. 1987 was uh, down in flames, and here we are again in 2020. Right. I mean, I think of uh, it's, it's even more devastating. Uh, I think back way back to um, 96 with Bob Dole, who took a loss here. But he was able to recover and, and move on. Uh, then you had uh, George W. Bush, who, who lost here. But then he went to South Carolina and won in, in 2000 and won that uh, nomination. Um, for Joe Biden, uh, it just never seemed like he, he had his heart and soul into New Hampshire. Uh, that's just my hunch. Uh, he said all the right things up until the end, which we'll, we'll get to when he self-destructed on the debate stage and said that he was and lowered, totally lowered the expectations and then obviously left the state 4.30 on the afternoon of election day. Um, that very disappointed core supporters who put a lot into his campaign. Uh, he, can he make it? Where's the money going to come from now? Uh, is it going to go to Klobuchar? How does Joe Biden get to his firewall of South Carolina. Uh, or And when he gets there, is it going to be sort of a rerun of what we saw way back in uh, to the 2008 campaign when Rudy Giuliani uh, relied on Florida and then by the time he got to Florida, it was over. So many of these campaigns sat down in 2019 and looked at the map and said, okay, we can, well, Bernie and Elizabeth are yeah. here, we can get around New Hampshire, we have to do it. The truism, oh, again and again, it, people always underestimate that week between Iowa and New Hampshire, exactly. the meat grinder, when everyone's paying attention. And if you haven't put the time in in New Hampshire, suddenly you're up, coming up short. I've always said, I mean, this was a weird year because of what happened in Iowa, but I've always said that the, the, uh, the bounce doesn't last that long. Yeah. All right, John DeStaso, Thank thanks Adam. so much. Nice job on this uh, it, cycle. And another primary under the belt for you. <laughs> yes. On to 11. Yeah, this was 12? 11. Oh, this is on to 12. We'll, we'll make count. it an even dozen next yeah, time. Let's we'll do see. it. We'll do it again next All time. Right. Time now for a MeTV Entertainment Quiz. What is the most memorable TV show on MeTV? Is it MASH, The Brady Bunch, Carol Burnett, Perry Mason, Gilligan's Island, The Andy Griffith Show? The answer is yes. They're all memorable entertainment. Watch all these and more on MeTV. MeTV New Hampshire is on Comcast Channel 945, Atlantic Broadband 299, and over the air on Digital Channel 9.2. She is the youngest and most widely followed of all of the Democratic Party's rising stars on the national level. And last week, we got the chance to sit down with Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez when she was here campaigning for Bernie Sanders. After she made her pitch for the Vermont senator, we asked her about her long-term plans and how she and other Sanders supporters plan to respond to Republican lines of attack if Sanders wins the nomination. They're clearly already messaging the word socialism. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm just curious, uh, what's going to be the response there? Well, I think ultimately, and what the response has always been, is to say, you can shout whatever names you want to shout. What's the actual policy that we're fighting for? 
And the actual policy agenda is Medicare for all, tuition-free public colleges and universities, a living wage, and frankly, Republicans have been calling common sense policies socialism since Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And when we actually stick to what we're truly fighting for, I think we'll be able to defend ourselves against bad faith attacks. I'm curious, uh, also in the primary process, there's been a lot of attention this time around on the relative lack of diversity in Iowa and New Hampshire. Moving forward, do you think it's time for change in any way or parallel to that? Here in New Hampshire, we always kind of like to pride ourselves on mm -hmm. the fact that someone like uh, Bernie Sanders can come along and the, um, there's no bar, you don't need the money here. So mm -hmm. I'm just curious if you'd like to see the primary process change. Yeah, you know, I think when we actually look at those top five, right, I think there should be a legitimate discussion as to what the order of that may be. And particularly when we look at caucuses, um, I know that that's not an issue here in New Hampshire, but when we look at caucuses, they can be very exclusionary to people if you're working two jobs, if you have a disability, it's really tough to show up at a school or a gym at night for several hours. Um, a lot of people, you know, they can't get childcare, they can't do all of those things. And so as a result, it can't be as democratic as, for example, a primary election is. And so I think there's some conversations to be had about the order of our primaries and who goes first and, and what that will look like moving forward. But we will take that conversation as it comes. And uh, last question here. Um here in New Hampshire, we got 18 more hours of primary 2020, and then we're already going to, on Wednesday, start mm -hmm. looking at primary 2024. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Is there any chance we're going to see you back here in New Hampshire a little bit more often along the Well, I think um, in support of what we hope to be Senator Sanders' re-election campaign in 2024, but um, I, I would be happy to support whoever that nominee is. Right. Long-term future, though. I mean, this is, you're one of these <laughs> rising stars. I'm too young. Stars. I'm too young That's not true. You're going to be old enough to be president of the United States in yeah. 2024, right? So. <laughs> I think just barely legally, um, but we'll take things one step at a time. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.